I think my unique insight actually came about a year ago when, when I was at Aave, where it was kind of pre a lot of this roll up as a service work or pre a lot of this modular blockchain kind of conversation. And it was just around a, a very simple problem statement. How are we actually scaling? Uh, a lot of these things. It was a very kind of naive question that, that led me down a lot of different paths. The looming problem is that, you know, entering a, a, an inflection point in the space in which we're going to start seeing just an absolute proliferation of, of chains. Appreciate you joining me, Jim. Uh, part two, my Wi-Fi cut out uh, the first time, so apologies, but really looking forward to this podcast. I think uh, you have a very unique point of view on the space. You've been involved for a long time. You've been involved in some pretty prolific projects. So maybe to kick it off, just a quick background on how you got into crypto. Uh, I believe you were at Aave before your time at Aave and how that kind of informed your view on the space. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and thanks for having me on. Definitely excited to, to talk more about what we're building at, at Catalyst um, and just about the space uh, broadly. Um, but yeah, my, my background quickly, um, I've been in crypto for uh, about six years now full time. Uh, so I started off actually as, as a, a crypto researcher uh, and consultant kind of advising, um, you know, enterprises like Fortune 500 companies uh, and financial institutions on uh, kind of what blockchain was and crypto was. And this is back in 2017, where things like distributed ledger technologies and and enterprise blockchains were, were kind of all the rage. Um, and so that was kind of my focus at, at a consulting firm uh, out in San Francisco. Um, and then um, I very quickly realized that I wanted to actually build things. And so I, I left, uh, I moved across the street uh, to join Ripple. And I was actually there for two years as a, as a product manager doing their their core uh, blockchain kind of development and, and infrastructure work, which was, it was really cool to kind of get a line inside into what does it mean to build an L1? What does it mean to build uh, you know, a, a monolithic blockchain uh, using today's terms. Uh, so that was pretty elucidating. Um, after kind of DeFi summer, I said, no, Ethereum is the place to be. Um, I had a short stint at, at an NFT company where I was a PM there. Uh, and then, you know, kind of went back to my my roots of, of finance and and, um, and kind of the problem statement there. So I joined Aave uh, in summer of 2021. Um, and then my formal title there was uh, I was a uh, head of experiments. Uh, and which is uh, kind of sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a definitely a really cool role. It's a kind of a hybrid between uh, like research and, and new products. And so I did a lot of work um, on infrastructure. Honestly, uh, that's kind of where my my natural interests um, were, were kind of landing on. And so things around zk snarks um, for not so much for scaling, but more for privacy preserving deposits, um, identity primitives for under collateralized lending. Um, and then ultimately I also was, was exploring um, interoperability, right? How do we connect all these disparate Aave deployments together? Or, you know, even at the time I, I was at Lens um, or working with the Lens protocol and uh, thinking about and how do we scale Lens, right? How do we use things like data availability layers? How do we, you know, build a, a domain specific or application specific environment in order to optimize for certain things? And so, that's kind of what led me down the rabbit hole of like, you know, app specific rollups, modular blockchain thesis, and of course, uh, you know, the the interoperability kind of implications of it. Uh, and, you know, I left uh, Aave um, after a year and a half, so sometime last year, uh, and uh, started Catalyst, essentially. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing background and appreciate the walking us through it. It's, it's always, I would say, hard to kind of make the jump into crypto, I think. 
by being able to do some of those advisories, maybe you got a little bit more of a sneak peek where without having to like jump in full time, but then getting to join Ave is uh, no small feat and head of special projects and even Ripple, just understanding the inner workings of kind of what crypto looks like. Um, it's very impressive. I think with uh, even spending time at Ave, you kind of got a unique lens on the research side, on the special projects. You ultimately got to kind of deep dive the modular thesis. And I would say today, there, crypto, in my point of view, is maybe fractured. Maybe I'm in a little bit of the minority camp of kind of monolithic chains. But I would love to have you explain a little bit of what you ultimately maybe backing up. You wrote a great article about, it's called The Looming Problem. Can you kind of describe what you saw during your research that uh, kind of made you want to start Catalyst? Yeah. So uh, The Looming Problem, I guess, answer first, <laughs> is that I, I think we're you know, entering a, a, an inflection point in the space in which we're going to start seeing just an absolute proliferation of, of chains, right? They're not, you know, real chains in the sense that they're not, you know, monolithic, but uh, roll-ups, right? Or, or other kind of monikers for, for modular chains, um, you know, like roll-ups or, or, um, or what have you. Um, I think we're going to start seeing just an absolute explosion of them, right? Um, and uh, I think... You know, for folks that pay attention to this space, they, they've been kind of seeing a lot of uh, emergence of projects called like rollups as a service. And so making it just easier and easier to, to create a blockchain, whether, you know, you're a developer and using some sort of SDK slash toolkit, or, or even if you're uh, just kind of a, an everyday user and you're, you're kind of clicking a button and, you know, you have this GUI that allows you to, to change different parameters. Um, and so... That's kind of like the the macro headwind that I'm seeing just, you know, like paying attention to Twitter and seeing what all the buzz is around in terms of uh, projects and and uh, and what builders are kind of focusing on. Um, I think my unique insight uh, actually came um, about a year ago when, when I was at Aave, um, where it was kind of pre a lot of this, you know, roll up as a service work or pre a lot of this modular blockchain um, kind of conversation. And it was just around a, a very simple problem statement um, for for my team at, at Ave, and that was, um, you know, how do we actually scaling uh, a lot of these things, right? Um, and so it, it it was a very kind of naive question that that led me down a lot of different paths. And so one path was just okay, like let's just go to another chain, right? And and that's was was kind of like a vendor assessment framework in which I was speaking to teams at. Solana, the teams at Avalanche, um, such and so forth, kind of exploring um, kind of what, what it means to, to build in those environments. Uh, and then the second path was kind of um, around roll-ups, right? Just like talking to, to L2s on, on Ethereum and even, um, you know, even app chains or even uh, on a Cosmos or, or roll-ups on top of Cosmos as well. Kind of so many permutations of, of projects that you can talk to. Um, and that kind of led me to see that there was a lot of benefits to actually creating, you know, an application-specific environment that was tailor-made for the specific things that we wanted, right? Whether it be, um, you know, having kind of optimized gas prices for certain opcodes that we use more than others, having a different gas token, having MEV capture, having kind of uh, enforcements in consensus that allow us to not have sandwiching or not have 
any sort of extractive behavior or prioritize certain things over others and also not have to compete with other applications uh, in that kind of gas market or that block space market rather uh, was really kind of important to us. But a lot of it was like super nascent, right? Like these were just like ideas more or less. And so, but that, that was kind of like the initial hook, right? It was like, I had this high level goal. It was like, so you know, like we need the scale. Uh, we have yeah. more demand than we have supply. Uh, and kind of like going down that rabbit hole of just like, okay, what are all the options in front of us? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, even today, I still think the market is a little bit fractured in their viewpoints on how the industry is going to scale. And what I really appreciate about the industry is that we're kind of definitely exploring all the nooks and crannies of these different avenues. When you kind of went down some of the topics um, and exploring these different ecosystems outside of like Ethereum and L2 specifically, with like, say, uh, a Solana type architecture, or even like the Avalanche type architecture, what things there did you find that ultimately did not suit your needs that you decided, hey, this L2 world is really what I want to focus on? Was it specifically kind of the um, customization that you mentioned? Yeah, I think it was kind of like a trade-off, so to speak, where, well, I wouldn't even say our exploration was kind of bisected from like, oh, this is a monolithic chain and this is a not like a like a modular chain. It was more split down a line of, okay, like we can customize certain things with this execution environment and we can't customize it, right? And so on kind of that ladder bucket, I would even say, you know, when we were having conversations with some of these general purpose rollups, uh, the the value proposition was not as strong as a monolithic chain, right? So I'll even concede to that, right? Where like, okay, if you're general purpose, uh, you know, you can kind of do anything in, in whatever kind of state machine that, that you choose. Many of them choose EVM. Um, it's not that different from a user experience from a monolithic chain, except, you know, of course, you get some sort of security guarantees from whatever settlement layer that they're um, kind of having finality from, but, uh, that was kind of like, I I think from a builder perspective or like a day-to-day value proposition perspective, kind of, you know, fluffy. Um, and so, you know, having these conversations with monolithic chains, I was like, oh, like this, this is arguably better, right. Especially if we're kind of solving for, if we're solving for, uh, like just, you know, throughput and, and transaction costs and everything. Um, but then it became more interesting once, you know, we had this conversation around, okay, what does it mean to stand up our own environment? And, uh, I think the benefit of having a modular chain over a monolithic chain in that regard, so like a roll-up instead of like maybe an app an app chain, uh, was kind of the the all the the headaches of of standing up your own validator set and and running your own consensus mechanism and having your own kind of chain level governance or, or so to speak. So um, that I think that was kind of like where where we kind of fell down the lines and. Ultimately, we're, we're more interested in the app-specific uh, route, but also I would say what held us back was just the pure nascency of that idea, right? Like a lot of that, a lot of those ideas were purely ideas at the time, and and only now are coming to kind of fruition in some sort of product. Yeah, it is interesting. I think there's a lot of small nuances with these different architectures, like you mentioned, just even between an L2 and an app chain by running an app chain, you need to spin up your own validators. How do you kind of establish some floor of security? Uh, the layer twos, do you have one sequencer? Do you have many sequencers? Uh, do you have composability uh, with other uh, chains? And I'm sure we'll, or other L2s 
um, the costs of transactions, the different virtual machines. It's there's a lot of different choices. Uh, even today, it's not I would say evident to builders today which is a clear winner because I don't think there is a clear winner. I definitely feel like everybody's still on the starting line, uh, just being how early it is in the ecosystem. So again, I, I really do appreciate that these different nuances are being explored. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's the, the the benefit of having, um, you know, uh, a, a landscape of an experimentation where people can kind of just like turn stones and, and, and see kind of what works and, uh, I like I like that point that you mentioned. Like I think everyone's still at the starting line. Like irrespective of like some folks building for longer, like all these ideas are still trying to be proved out uh, in the market. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing, one of the big reasons why I really got into the space was to have people use blockchains, and I think even as you probably found in your research as well, there's not actually a lot of addresses interacting with dApps on-chain. Uh, I think DeFi was a great example of what you could do on-chain once you had um, composability. DeFi summer was an amazing time. Uh, pretty radical spur of innovation that spurred a lot of different unique use cases, a lot of interesting food tokens. But the peeling back, I would say the curtains, there's just few people actually using them. And so I came to personally became a little bit disheartened with how how much it costs to really interact with like Ethereum at the base chain, especially once DeFi summer started picking up. And then really once 2021 started, it, it was expensive to uh, yeah. interact with ETH on the main chain. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, it's kind of a weird dichotomy where like, um, if you want to be a really good, like if you're trying to be like a user driven product organization and you're building a product, the business case is, especially if you're on Ethereum, is like go after rich people, right? Like you're building for like people that, that have a lot of capital at their exposure and they have different user behaviors, right? So it's like Blur is a great example. It was like, hey, we're taking this idea of like this cute, you know, art marketplace. And we're like, no, like people are trading these things. They're sweeping the floor. They want analytics, right? And and that and that's a huge contrast with like, I think what a lot of people want crypto to be, which is like, no, like this public good that is breaking down the barriers of transacting financial value and also having self-sovereign data ownership uh, around the world. And you're like, well, you can't really do that when, you know, the gas prices are so high and as a product org, I can't prioritize those people because they're not real necessarily. So definitely a healthy tension, I think, as a builder in the space. 100%. Well, maybe I think that's a good introduction into what you're building at Catalyst. You see the future being modular, many layer twos. Um, how, maybe just describing Catalyst, what you have built and the vision that you kind of see one for the modular design space and how you're kind of unifying that as well. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll start with kind of the, the high level vision and then um, can talk a little bit more about what we're building uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so the high level vision is, uh, you know, like we talked about, there's this looming problem, right? There is infrastructure and there's interest in having just a proliferation of chains. And so once you have 
more and more chains that that looks like a very different world than the world that we're operating in now, right? Um, and I'd say to, to level set with folks, I think the current state right now is, let's say like 10 domains that people are, are interested in interacting with, right? Some monolithic, some of them are, are roll-ups. Um, and uh, and, and from a DAP builder perspective or from a DAP protocol uh, builder perspective, um, you can kind of get away with just copy and pasting, right? You're like, okay, like I'm just going to redeploy different places uh, and I'm going to have some general sense of a governance structure in order to like connect them all together, right? Whether it be manual or whether it be, um, you know, whether it be some light kind of messaging overlay on top of it to pass, you know, governance payloads. Um, that's okay, right? Um, and and again, that that's totally fine in the context of of ten chains. Um, but what happens in the context of fifty chains, hundred chains, ten thousand chains, a million chains? You're, you're not going to have a team of fifty people that are like constantly deploying in different places and and, and coordinating with folks. Um, and, and that's just on the on the smart contract perspective, right? Like I think if we zoom out, we can kind of see that a lot of things break. Right, like we could see that, like RPCs probably break, uh, block explorers probably break, wallets are definitely going to break, right? And so, uh, I think it behooves the entire industry to think about this looming problem and, and essentially say, how do I take what I've built, or how do I take the primitives that've been built and reconstruct them in a scalable way that allows for you know the the e the easy kind of um, integration of, of of all these new chains are going to be coming uh, in the future, right? And I think there's a new wave of builders that are precisely thinking about that, right? Uh, whether it be new projects or whether it be builders within existing organizations are really kind of pounding the drum on, hey, like we're going to get disrupted if if we're not doing this. Um, so sorry, that was a bit of a long winded kind of view into into what into the problem that we're trying to solve for. Um, no, I, I do yeah. think it's great because I, I, I don't think enough people are ultimately thinking about what you just articulated. When you have multiple different layer twos, you have to really kind of rebuild a lot of the infrastructure. As you mentioned, RPCs, you have to do uh, wallets have to be able to know uh, where to point. You have to, um, uh, as you said, the block explorers, all those pieces, I think, work today because everything's kind of logically centralized on like ethereum and even in these monolithic chains but when you start to modularize it uh it does introduce some different problems yeah uh, absolutely and i think um because a lot of this stuff has is still kind of being researched and and kind of discussed in theory no one has really kind of seen a clear need in order to do so but i think that time is coming sooner than people uh realize and um i think it why that's you know pertinent for for us and, and catalyst is essentially you know i saw this looming problem my co-founder saw this as well um and we decided to start from like the base kind of foundations of how we actually overcome this right and so catalyst is essentially uh liquidity it's a, it's the it's one of the most base kind of primitives that we need uh in crypto uh, and it's liquidity built for millions of chains right and so there's kind of three principles that we've been actioning on in order to allow Catalyst to be anywhere and to kind of build for a future of that scale. Um, and so essentially it's it's automatic from the sense that as there are new chains that are being kind of um, brought up online and deployed, Catalyst can automatically be there and automatically connect that chain to every other chain that Catalyst is on 
Uh, it's permissionless. And so anyone can interact with any chain. Uh, there's no kind of gatekeeping in that regard. And the last piece is extensible, right? And so we kind of believe in a world of kind of, um, uh, it's like a heterogeneous world. And so of like different consensus mechanisms and, and state machines and what have you. Um, and so we built Catalyst in a way that essentially says we can be in all those places and we can, you know, have some sort of unifying standard. That's not a great word, but like we have some way of uh, compatibility with all those kind of disparate frameworks so that they can all talk to each other and move value with one another. So those are kind of like the three principles of what Catalyst is as a liquidity layer. Amazing. Uh, I think that's a great setup. We'll get into the technical stack a little bit later. Uh, super excited to learn about that. But those three core principles, could you maybe just dive a little bit deeper into each um, and why those are the core focus? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think with a lot of problems that I kind of look at, like I'm, I'm thinking about what is the most important or like what is like the top level question that needs to be solved. And so, you know, when, when uh, Alexander and I, Alexander is my co-founder, uh, were thinking about Catalyst, we were, we were kind of thinking about what is the top level question that needs to be solved. And it's essentially um, like, how do we maintain this kind of connective, composable experience uh, within DeFi um, in, a, in a world of kind of, a, you know, multi-domains and also a proliferation of chains, right? And so we kind of, we're thinking about what all those pieces are. And, and I think one of them is, is being open, or I think we said it differently, is, is permissionless. Uh, another one is that um, they're composable in the sense that uh, like you can kind of connect them all together very automatically, right? Uh, and then the last piece was more around like more of a, more of a, uh, like a theory of the world of like, okay, like no one's going to like submit to a universe, universal standard. And so we need to build in a way in which we can be very extensible for a world of, you know, um, like heterogeneous kind of blockchains or, or execution environments. And so that was kind of like our through line essentially. Um, but it didn't come easy. It came through a lot of, uh, <laughs> brainstorming sessions, I would say. I'm sure. I'm sure. And the technical stack, I'm sure, is just as interesting. I think being able to mash together different virtual machines and different consensus algorithms is no small feat uh, across different chains. Uh, you have different block times. You have different ways of how they communicate. Uh, maybe if we want to, can just kind of jump into what is the secret sauce that uh, makes Catalyst work on the back end? Yeah, definitely. And so... Um, I want to preface that Catalyst is a multi kind of um, version journey, right? And so kind of what we're bringing to market this year is is kind of a, a step in, in that journey, essentially. Um, and, and so I'm uh, going to share with you kind of how Catalyst works. It's kind of solving for, I would say, 60% of this end state that I have, but then subsequent versions will kind of uh, allow for the satisfaction of, of the remaining 40 essentially um but catalyst uh the secret sauce behind it is essentially a, a concept that we call the unit of liquidity uh and so the unit of liquidity said really simply is a baseline calculation of the liquidity on each catalyst deployment uh and so it spans assets it spans Asset representations, as defined by you know certain state machines, it def uh, you know it spans amounts, it spans 
anything that you can think of, right? And so that is kind of the, the core innovation. And essentially, we leverage the unit of liquidity as this kind of, uh, I say the word universal a lot, but it's like universal receipts that every catalyst deployment is able to communicate value um, between each other. And so how Catalyst works underneath the hood is essentially we have um, smart contracts that are deployed on each chain. These smart contracts hold assets, right? So they're pools. Uh, and what uh, Catalyst is able to do is they essentially can calculate within each specific pool by each specific asset, how many units of liquidity there are. And so when folks want to swap, you know, let's say ETH on Ethereum and they want to acquire Matic on Polygon, um, that would essentially be communicated um, through the Catalyst protocol using the units of liquidity, right? And so it's like you deposit one ETH, that might be, you know, three units of liquidity. That gets transmitted, um, you know, cross chain. And then when it's received by the destination side, they then convert that unit of liquidity into how much Matic needs to be withdrawn from the pool. And so if you abstract that from a user's perspective, they just sold one ETH and they just received, you know, 1600 Matic or whatever the, the market rate is. From a, maybe for the non-technical audience that is listening, it seems like there's quite a few, I would say, bridging solutions that are now kind of arising. Uh, Axlar, Layer Zero, etc., how do, would you describe yourself as a bridge? If so, why? If not, why? And how, how would you kind of compare and contrast what kind of the unit of liquidity is to just a traditional bridging solution? Yeah, so I would call it liquidity layer. <laughs> um, but I, I think uh, if we can be intellectually honest, uh, it is doing the job of a bridge. Right. In the sense that value is being moved from one domain to another domain. Um, and so I think our, the difference between what we're doing and there's a number of ways to slice it. Right. I think. But the biggest difference is we're built for this looming problem that we've been discussing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think existing bridges are very much of the camp of let's, you know, deploy in different chains. Let's have governance processes, et cetera. Um, Catalyst is built in a way in which as more chains come online, it will Catalyst will automatically be there and, and connect to any other chain, right? And we're able to do that because again, uh, because of the unit liquidity, right? It's like, if you're trying to move, you know, units of liquidity from like a brand new chain to Ethereum, for example, that can happen trivially right out of the box. Whereas that's not necessarily the case for other bridges. Um, and so I think that's like the biggest differentiator, but maybe like a second sub point that I'll add is that the way that Catalyst works is we're not actually using a token in order to facilitate these transfers, right? The unit liquidity is, is not a token. It's, it's just a value. It's a, it's a value that we use that, that's ephemeral that basically is like a unit of account for the whole system, right? And so I think a lot of other bridging solutions try to do that but they use a token for it, right? Because that's kind of the only mechanism that they know how. So it's like, okay, you lock, you know, uh, you lock ETH and then you get some sort of minted uh, wrapped representation of ETH on the destination chain. And you kind of use it in that regard, right? And that is fine. Um, but I think you run into a number of issues. One is that you kind of hope 
right? And the, the keyword is hope that the wrapped asset is backed one-to-one with the locked native asset, uh, mm-hmm. which we've seen in the past has not been the case for, for several uh, kind of instances, unfortunately. Um, and the second piece is you need, now you need liquidity for this wrapped asset, right? And so that's very capitally inefficient. And so when you look at Catalyst, we use native assets. So we don't need the liquidity for a wrapped asset and we don't have those kind of security uh, kind of uh, vulnerabilities in that regard. Gotcha. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, the ramp assets have been uh, very troublesome for the industry. And I think there's kind of, I mean, definitely a bifurcation of wrapped assets versus just being able to kind of transfer tokens natively onto those individual chains. And I, I believe that will kind of be the dominant solution going forward just to prevent some of the issues that we've seen with wrapped assets. But I think one thing that you mentioned, Catalyst will be able to kind of integrate with kind of any chain and any different virtual machine and consensus. How are you able to do that from a kind of technical standpoint? Are you deploying new instances of the Catalyst code base on each of these machines or each of these new layer ones? Or are you kind of, again, just kind of built abstracted outside of those different ones and kind of plugging into each of them? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, so the way that the, the reason why Catalyst is able to be so extensible for all these different virtual machines is that uh, in the essence of what Catalyst is, is it's a math library, right? Like we're trying to take certain assets and the values or not even the values, but like certain assets and um, and kind of the, the quantity of the assets are deposited into into a pool. And we're trying to convert that into some sort of mathematical value, right? And so that is literally what Catalyst is. And it's kind of the usage of that value, again, the unit of liquidity, and kind of the ability to um, kind of like synchronize, so to speak, all the different pools and all different assets within those pools and different chains against this one mathematical value uh, is what allows Catalyst to be so powerful, right? Uh, and so with that said, because Catalyst is a math library, you can essentially represent that math library in any Turing complete machine, right? And so it's trivial for us to move from EVM. Well, it's trivial for us to create an implementation for EVM and then create an implementation for Wasm and then create an implementation for Move because the foundation is just math essentially. So it's basically just like an approximation theory against the, the specific requirements of these state machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's basically how we, we're, we're able to be extensible because, you know, if I got a call and someone said, we, we need the fuel, you know, someone on my team called me and said, we need the fuel VM, I would, I would feel comfortable knowing that we could do that trivially. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe reframing it as a question, you we'll have to kind of write the specific instances, but because the kind of underlying primitive is relatively simplistic in the math format, you don't think it will be a kind of a large problem to deploy on these different virtual machines. Yeah, I think that's the right way to frame it. It's like the foundation is set such that these writing specific implementations uh, becomes quite trivial. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, the the virtual machine machine spaces one that i really enjoy i think uh right now there's kind of two different bifurcations with like single threaded and then parallelization and then how you do parallelization and then you can kind of get into the consensus rabbit hole but there's a lot of different unique flavors that people are kind of exploring going back to 
again, just the industry, I think, being early and trying different things. Yeah, definitely. And I, and honestly, that, that's a really good point that, that you're flagging, right? Like, I do think that there are certain virtual machines that unlock certain capabilities of catalysts that may not be possible within the EVM. Uh, and so you said, like, parallelization is, is, is kind of a really good piece. I also think um, some concept of like a predicate system, right, or some sort of like um, like conditional intent based kind of expression, uh, also allows for a lot of power within Catalyst. Um, to be said, like you know, we're all we're pretty heads down with this specific version, but we imagine you know the the innovation happening in the virtual machine will will only augment the capabilities of Catalyst in the future. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, it is it's fascinating uh, design space and what you're building. Maybe just jumping in slightly a little bit more technical. Uh, I think on the website it mentions that Catalyst is one of only works with the most secure and most trust minimized interoperability protocols. I think I've seen trust minimized thrown around on the timeline on Twitter uh, in many places more, more now uh, so than I have ever seen in the past. Can you explain what tr trust minimization is and kind of why that is important? Yeah, definitely. Um, trust minimization, uh, I think definitionally, when you when you in in the context of interoperability means that no additional like uh, trust assumptions are inherited um, when you are using that interoperability solution right um, and so um, in the context of like let's say you're moving value from or not even value but you're 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 passing a message um, whether it be reading state or, or some sort of write uh, state transition function uh, from Ethereum to, to Polygon, um, a trust-minimized um, setup is essentially saying, I'm trusting the validators on Ethereum and I'm trusting the validators on Polygon, right? Uh, and as a counterexample, that is typically actually not the case. Uh, and so usually what happens is there's a third party um, that is kind of facilitating the transactions between the two or the messages between the two domains uh, and you're actually inheriting kind of the weakest link uh, of those three, right? So whether it be some sort of stake system for this, basically a third blockchain, or whether it be some sort of honest minority assumption, if it's like an optimistic relayer, um, that's kind of what uh, what it means to not be trust minimized. And so that's kind of like the the abstract definition, but how that actually plays out in, in reality, just using like lay, lay, lay person terms, is that... Uh, you know, there's something called native verification, where these two blockchains are essentially um, part of the consensus of each other, right? And so they're running some sort of uh, like client of one another that's typically represented as a smart contract and then verified on chain. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that overview. I, again, I, I've been seeing that topic and those words pop up more on the timeline uh, more recently than ever. So I uh, appreciate the clarification for the people that are watching and listening. Sure. In terms um, of... Oh, sorry. Like there's a whole rabbit hole we can go down if, if we want to talk about that. Because I, I do think trust minimization is... Uh, it's, a, it's a very lofty goal to aspire towards, but I think in reality, um, you're always going to be introducing something, unfortunately. I definitely think the industry is moving in general towards more trust minimized aspects specifically with light clients on layer ones uh even on like data availability layers on 
um, high throughput chains that have larger beefier nodes. I, it, it seems like it's going to be standard um, in the future, at least in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think it's something that needs to happen, honestly. Um, yeah. Or else, yeah, like, again, we run into kind of that weakest link issue. And I, you know, maybe as a side point, I think that's where a restaking collective like Eigenlayer can, can help kind of um, mitigate some of that a lot. So even if we're not trust minimized, we can have some sort of restaking as additional security. I, I, Eigenlayer is fascinating, um, but may, in a different podcast in all of itself. <laughs> totally, um, yeah. In terms of kind of Catalyst specifically, I mean, not necessarily comparing it to other bridging solutions, but they also run or liquidity layers have kind of their node or infrastructure that they run to kind of secure um, going from chain to chain. Are you guys running your own node infrastructure? If so, how many nodes, etc.? Um, could you maybe uh, elaborate on what you mean by other solutions running their own nodes? So like Axelar has a number of independent nodes running uh, software to kind of validate the cross-chain transfers. Uh, I think layer zero, ultimately it allows you to specificate um, the amount of money that you want kind of moving across these bridges. Is there yeah. any type of like capability that uh helps facilitate these transfers or provide the unit of liquidity that Catalyst is building? Yeah. So, sorry, we're going to go on a bit of a detour uh, in order okay. for me to give you a sufficient answer. Um, hope that's okay. So, um, so Catalyst is uh, effectively two pieces. So the first piece is the smart contract logic, which again is basically just a representation of a math library, right? And so that's where pools are or sorry, that's where assets are, are deposited into pools and, and this unit liquidity value is calculated. Um, the second piece is what we call our messaging interface. Uh, and that's essentially, uh, it has one simple job. It's, it's to pass the unit of liquidity um, from a origin domain to a destination domain, right? And so we actually uh, outsource that capability, right? And so we are a liquidity layer. We are a... DAP, right? A protocol that lives on execution layer. So we're not in the game of running infrastructure and nodes, so to speak. And so what we're essentially doing is we're aggregating a lot of these like arbitrary messaging protocols and basically having a mechanism in which we, um, you know, find the right routes in order to pass that message, right? Uh, and so aggregating, well, you know, we're, we're using IBC to start, but over time we, we might aggregate um, other kind of arbitrary messaging protocols in order to facilitate the passing of that message, right? Um, and again, like once you pass the unit of liquidity, it's, it, it's, a, it's a very simple 64-byte array. It gets received on destination uh, contract, uh, and then all, all the good stuff happens that we kind of talked about a little bit earlier. Um, and so again, like we're not running our own kind of node infrastructure because we're essentially outsourcing that to, to our organization. It makes a lot of sense. Um... And it kind of reduces the burden and headache uh, on your team. I think even going back to kind of app chains versus L2s, uh, running your own infrastructure is hard. It's uh, not necessarily easy. Yeah, and yeah, definitely. I, I not not to like like overuse the word like modular, but like um, like I think when you look at a lot of bridging solutions, like they they tend to be quite monolithic, honestly, in their approach, where they're like we're coupling the 
transfer of value with the messaging verification, right? So it's like, oh, like if you want to move money from two different chains, you have to use our infrastructure, you know, our full nodes, like Axlar's case, right? You mentioned Axlar, uh, in, order to, in order to validate that message, right? And, and we feel more uh, empowered to say that we're good at one thing. <laughs> we're good at math and, and, and smart contracts. We're not good at, uh, you know, relaying data packets and, and running nodes. And so we're just going to partner with other organizations to do that. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think one thing that you've also studied fairly deeply and have probably a unique opinion on is just uh, composability, kind of liquidity in itself, kind of across these different layer twos or different blockchain ecosystems. And then I would say finally, kind of the latency that can ultimately be introduced by kind of doing some of this message passing. Can you expand on one or kind of all three of those, just how you kind of think about either latency, composability, and obviously uh, your bread and butter with liquidity? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about where, where the best place to start is. Um, maybe I'll start with like a preface and say that uh, this is something that um, we're thinking about a lot. This is something that we think about uh, not even in our own island. You know, we talk with the broader kind of crypto community because a lot of people are, are thinking about the same thing. Like, uh, I, I think no one's really thinking about what kind of the world looks like in a world of millions of chains. But a lot of people are thinking about what the world looks like in, in with 20 chains. And quite frankly, even in that like narrowed scope, things are still very, very complicated, right? Uh, kind of what you kind of what you were um, implying earlier with your question. Um, and so I think where everyone so like what, what happens in, in kind of a, a multi-chain uh, world, right? What happens when you try to move value? It's like you said, um, there's latency. Right. Um, in terms of having different block times and um, just in terms of having different entities uh, build and propose and validate blocks, um, there is lack of composability uh, because of that. Uh, right. And there is liquidity fragmentation because of that as well, amongst a, a slew of other kind of, um, of kind of ramifications. Um, I think how Catalyst thinks about it is um, essentially um, like. Essentially, there needs to be uh, infrastructure that's kind of set in place that allows for kind of the reduction in, uh, in latency and also the ability to have some composability or atomicity that essentially abstracts away that latency, right? And so it's like underneath you have the chains and I mean, you know, side points are like things like shared sequencers, but we're going to table that for another time. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's yeah. endless rabbit holes to go down. Totally. In yeah, that's why I'm like struggling to give you a, a cogent answer here. Um, but I think the base is is the blockchains and their own kind of heartbeat, right? So to speak, of of uh, of blocks. Uh, we're also going to table uh, DA layers like Celestia. Let's just talk about monolithic blockchains. Um, I think the layer over that is essentially. Uh, I think last time we talked, I didn't give it a name, but now I'm going to call it the Solver Network. Uh, so it's basically uh, sophisticated entities that uh, are able to essentially um, abstract away the the latency of those different block times and of those different kind of validator sets. Uh, and, and would you describe that, that as soft finality or how would you describe it? Yeah, like uh, I think the term floating around is either soft finality or soft confirmations. 
Uh, and then things like sequence, you know, shared sequencers and DA layers uh, assist with that as well, right? Um, but yeah, so it's like sophisticated actors that have, you know, excuse me, capital on different blockchains or have, uh, you know, kind of run infrastructure in the background and providing a service essentially. Um, and then what sits on top of that is essentially like user actions, right? Or application uh, interactions. And so things like swapping and having very quick latency with that, but having to pay for that latency because uh, what's happening underneath the hood is basically a very complicated liquidity matching from these solvers. Um, and, uh, and also I think where Catalyst kind of plays in, in this top layer it's playing in a number of layers, but where it's playing in the top layers, essentially, um, we allow for the access of liquidity from users and also from solvers. And also we allow for some abstracted sense of atomicity, right? And so with, with Catalyst, what, what becomes really interesting is you can actually have multi-leg transactions that, you know, like an atomic transaction or atomic bundle, actually revert to the original transaction if all else fails. And so if you don't actually want money on a destination chain if you want to buy an nft or if you want to vote on a governance proposal or what have you uh and for some reason that doesn't work uh your whole leg reverts into the origin domain and so um that's kind of like how i this is not a very structured answer but hopefully somewhat of a structured answer in how i'm seeing the space evolve yeah no i i think it's again like there's so many small nuances in blockchains and as as you said there's many other different avenues that we could even go down to kind of talk about how we see the space evolving with shared sequencers with different data availability layers even talking about uh different virtual machines and i think the hard part i guess where i try to really take it back to is i think it's difficult for, say, the person that has been involved in the space so long to kind of understand and communicate some of these nuances. Do you ultimately feel like engineers will just kind of abstract some of these things? They really won't know which L1, L2 they're on. They're kind of just using the application. Uh, maybe they're paying slightly more for like the lower latency. How do you see like the end user ultimately either understanding not understanding or actually interacting with these things yeah that's a good question um i think a really consensus take is that the end user uh shouldn't know that they're interacting with with blockchains right uh, or, or in the sense of they, they shouldn't know what blockchain they're interacting with because there's some sort of abstraction right an overlay network that routes them to, to certain um, essentially that, that grants them access to a certain block space that's tailor-made for their specific use case, right? So it's like, okay, NFT mint chain is different from NFT swap chain is different from game chain, uh, but it's all one, one interface, right? Um, I, uh, believe that I would say, uh, I, I think at a high level, I am a bit, and I think the right analogy is like, you know, when I'm watching something on YouTube, I actually don't know like what content delivery network it's coming from um or like when i like and i think people get mad they're like oh like why is my ad loading and my youtube video isn't well it's like oh well your ad's actually stored locally uh, or closer to you um so i believe that uh i think the road to get there uh will will have many kind of click stops that start to abstract certain things but you know i think i'm i'm still of the camp of like uh crypto wants to be seen uh, which was a great article that Foundation posted, uh, I think, when they launched V2. And they're like, yeah, like V1, 
we tried to tell people like we didn't tell people what gas prices were or what block times were or what finality was and people just got confused and then v2 we did and people were like oh okay those are new concepts like i i, I kind of grok it so i i do believe that people don't need to know certain things but i do think with any new technology you just there's just new terminology that you need to know right like you know people when they were you know like calling each other on landlines they didn't know like what uh what like download speed <laughs> for your wi-fi is right and now we do know and i think there's going to be a healthy kind of analogy for for crypto maybe a spicy question but do i think there is kind of two camps today one of them kind of being the modular world kind of stitching these all together and then the monolithic world do you see a case that the monolithic world ultimately is able to kind of gain some market share just because of its simplicity? Or do you think that monolithic in your point of view is just going to be ruled out and ultimately kind of convert similar to a modular stack? Yeah, that that's a good question. Um, I will say at this point in time, I will concede that there are definitely a lot of benefits uh, to having a, a monolithic stack. I think I think the rallying cry, honestly, for for the Solana team in like late 2020 uh, was was single shard, right? They were like, okay, we're against ETH2. We don't believe in sharded state. Uh, we believe in uh, composability in this one singleton machine. Um, and uh, I, I still think that that holds true, right? Like I think a lot of people are kind of banging their heads against a wall thinking about, okay, like how do we overcome fraud proof windows and uh, the asynchrony that occurs when different, there are different block times and they're trying to create different mechanisms in order to kind of uh, overcome that. And, and if you have a mind, it's kind of like a joke. It's like kind of like a meme where it's like, there's like the, the version that's like thinking about on th these different things and the Chad monolithic guy is just like, it just works because yeah. it's just one, <laughs> it's just one state. Um, but um, so I will concede that, or I will concede being being you know a modular maxi. I, I will I will concede that. I'm being intellectually honest. Um, I, I'm a pragmatist. You know, I I think I think we're entering a world in which everyone wants to be building modular, and so it, it, the reality is that you have to stitch everything together. Like you know, Genie's kind of out of the bottle in that regard. Maybe maybe they all kind of um, dissipate, or some, there's some consolidation, but. Do think genies out of the bottle, especially when you come to kind of um, the, the the problem that I, I was facing at Ave, where you know configuring something for your own domain is actually quite helpful. Um, and and I I think since then I've met so many builders that believe the same way and, and feel empowered to to build their own application specific environment. Um, but I'm a pragmatist in the sense that I think there's there's a world in which you can kind of share uh, kind of kind of homes, right? So. Something that I think Solana, or it's not Solana, but just uh, just monolithic uh, chains in general are, are really good at is kind of that streamlined user experience um, for for you know like um, and you know if you have parallelization, I think that kind of solves it as well. Um, and so it would be really good for like honestly like gaming. Um, I think um, like actually Scott Sonardo gave a really good talk uh, in in New York uh, two weeks ago about how shards are actually good for games, right? It's like, when you look at DeFi, you're like, oh, we don't want shard state, but games is actually okay because you can have different servers for different games uh, or, or um, other ways of sharding. And so um, you might not even need that in a monolithic chain, right? You can just have one state of a game, uh, especially if it's single player and having people kind of interact in that, in that regard. 
Um, so I will concede that, uh, that I think there will be some benefits to having a monolithic chain for certain things. Um, but I do think just the recap genies out of the bottle, people want app specific environments. And so I don't think there's a world in which monolithic usurps, uh, modular, but I don't think, I don't think the, the inverse is, is necessarily true either. Yeah, no, it's, 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 a interesting question. I, I personally believe all the architectures will look the same in the end. I, I do think the kind of like asterisk with that is the customization piece. If you want to truly customize kind of, as you said, like the opcodes or kind of even having your own gas tokens, there's just some of those things that you cannot do um, on a more monolithic chain. But that being said, whether it's a modular chain, in my opinion, or monolithic chains, I think just from all my research and how you scale blockchains, they're going to look very similar with like high data availability at the base layer, whether that's coupled with the execution environment or not, you still need more compute. Um, you can either do it like single threaded virtual machines or you can do it paralyzed. Um, and so I am fascinated just to see where the space ends up. And I think, as I said initially, I really do appreciate that we are early and everybody's trying different ways to scale and different abilities like your team with Catalyst providing uh, solutions to builders of the monolithic point of view to kind of streamline those and pull it all together. Uh, it's not easy um, to kind of have a point of view on the space more holistically. And so I appreciate the people that have a more pragmatic point of view, uh, see the world in a particular light and try to fix that problem. It's, it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I applaud the people in kind of in the, at the forefronts kind of thinking about that. Um, and uh, one thing that I will, will kind of uh, kind of add on to, to my previous statement is that uh, I think like, the good thing about monolithic, I, I think general purpose monolithic is probably not going to pan out. I think people, you know, like, you know, it's like when you get too many kind of different people in one town, they're like, I don't want to pay for this person's activities or something. Maybe not the right analogy, but uh, I do think like tailor made monolithic works because the benefit of monolithic is just sovereignty, right? That's always been kind of like the cosmos ethos. And so when you look at something like say, it's like, okay, like we have like 200 millisecond block times, right? And like if they were built, if even they're, they're built as a sovereign rollup and they use Celestia, well, Celestia has two second block times, right? So it's like you're always beholden to to Celestia's data availability. Whereas if you're fully sovereign, uh, you can have that 200 millisecond if you so choose. And so uh, I understand the need for that. I think their block time finality is 600 seconds. I don't know if they've gotten it down to 200. That would be super impressive. I know Solana is aiming ultimately for 200 milliseconds as well it gets a little bit harder once you get under 200 i think the circumference of the earth is 133 <laughs> milliseconds so uh i think we're starting pu pushing physics there but yeah it, it's a uh, geographically bounded uh inviolability or something uh <laughs> no yeah <laughs> it would be interesting i mean solana is ultimately trying to do multiple leaders so you can kind of cut that down into say 133 divided by two so worst case like you're somewhere in between those. Um, no, it, it it is fascinating. I, I think it's, I mean, as we said, the, the design space is unique. I think every blockchain today in terms of users is undoubtedly still on the same starting line. Ethereum has like a slight advantage, definitely with TVL, uh, a lot more liquidity there. 
But uh, in terms of user adoption, I think it's kind of one blockchain game, one killer app could really turn the tables in terms of user adoption. And so I appreciate that you and the Catalyst team are focusing on scale and trying to stitch the modular world together. Maybe shifting slightly, just as we're wrapping up the podcast, what has been like your kind of biggest takeaways from just being involved in the industry, being at Aave, being at Ripple? to now starting your own company. Are there anything that has really stood out from the past couple of years that you've been in the industry, whether it's the ups and downs, uh, avoiding uh, the FTXs of the worlds, the Lunas, um, any wisdom that you can share either on the company building or just kind of staying alive in this crazy market that we're all uh, involved in? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if this is... Off the top of my head, I'm just going to give you an answer. Probably not, you know, the the best answer to to your question. Um, but uh, I definitely don't want to give you a platitude. Uh, you know, like follow the users or or do your own research or what have you. Um, I think when you when I look at the through line of of my of my career in crypto, it's always been like deeper <laughs> into the rabbit hole, right? So it's like you know, distributed ledger technology research. Uh, you know, Ripple. NFTs, you know, Aave, but in more kind of a research infra lens and now at Catalyst, it's just gone kind of deeper and deeper and more and more kind of uh, in tune to, to, the, to the kind of forefront of crypto and, and kind of the, the core infrastructure and the, the core guts of crypto. Um, and at my time, um, you know, in the space, in my time in the space, I've seen a lot of people come and they try to, um, how do I say this? Like, they try to apply their existing kind of mental models uh, outside of crypto to crypto. And for the most part, I welcome that, right? I think that's where innovation comes is net new perspectives. But I think there's a little bit of hubris that comes when people come in, right? They're like, I've worked in Fang. I know how to build consumer apps, right? Like you just slap crypto on it. It's good to go. Or it's like, I come from building distributed systems. I know exactly how to build the next L1, right? Like, let's do this. Um, and I, and I, time and time again, I, I've seen people, including myself, including myself, be super humbled, super humbled by that, right? And so this is a space that requires a lot of, you know, mental kind of op thoughtfulness, uh, openness and, and curiosity to kind of, you know, leverage the learnings that, that people have, that you've had or, or people have had in, in your previous experiences. Um, but don't blindly follow those because this is a very different domain space. And so um, that's kind of like been my biggest takeaway uh, for my career. Uh, I think that's beautiful. There, as you said, there's many people in the whole Web2 world that will kind of come in and say, I, I know X, Y, and Z. You're all dumb. Uh, listen to me. And I've interviewed a lot of people on the podcast. And I, I think the biggest thing that I have learned, as you said, is really to try to be as humble as possible, listen to all the nuances that people communicate, and really, as you said, come with it with an open mind. And I think just being on the starting line, also being open to different points of view. At the end of the day, what we really need is more engineers and we more need more users uh, to push the space forward. And I think staying humble, staying open-minded, I, I think the Andreessen saying is uh, strong opinions, weakly held. Uh, it will take you very far in the space. 
Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think that will serve people uh, incredibly well in this space. 100%. Well, really appreciate you coming on, Jim. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your vision of the modular future, what you're building at Catalyst and Catalabs. Uh, I wish you and the team the most success. And thank you again for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate the good convo. Thank you.